Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 9. <clears throat> I want to read the whole chapter, because um, I want you to see where it is that we're going here, but, but we're really only going to look at the first five verses this morning, because they kind of, those first five verses of chapter 9 lay a theological foundation uh, upon which the Apostle Paul and, and really uh, other biblical writers build. Um, and then, uh, really, these verses, they, they raise and, and uh, then answer a very significant um, question that has plagued humanity since creation, and it's probably a question that you've been asked as a Christian. Probably somebody has asked you this question, or if they haven't, they will at some point. Um, so, so John chapter 9, you'll see what the question is as we work through this. As he passed by, that is Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is, not the, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had, been, who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some from the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself." His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, that they were to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you not also want to become one of his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that, man is, uh, that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Ever since the world began, it is, has, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone who opened the eyes of a man born blind. Of this man, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have been speaking, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. 
said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see, your guilt remains. Pray with me one more time. Lord, give us eyes to see today. Help us to understand these things as you speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. So this chapter, chapter 9, kind of marks a a transition here in the gospel according to John. I don't know if you remember, we've been in John's gospel for quite some time, but early in our study of this book, I mentioned that that John, the gospel, this writing here, is divided into kind of two different books. At least that's how some describe it. They would call the first part of it the book of the signs, that's through chapter 12, and the book of the glory from chapter 13 and on. So John kind of paces this narrative for us. He, he tells us the story of Jesus using these signs, these miracles that he performs as proof of Jesus' claims to be the Son of God. In fact, near the end of John's gospel, John tells his readers this. He says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here we find ourselves um, looking down into chapter 9. And we find ourselves facing here this sixth sign, this healing of a man who is born blind, blind from birth. And just kind of by way of reminder, I want to give you again the signs that we've already seen, signs that are proof, signs that are given that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here are the signs. The first one was when he turned water into wine in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. The second sign that John records for us is the the healing of an official's son, a government official's son in chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. The third sign took place in chapter 5, really the first 17 verses. It was the healing of the lame man by by the pool. And that healing also took place on the Sabbath, which was a very important point for the the narrative there. Uh, The fourth sign was the feeding of the 5,000 chapter 6, and then right after that is followed by the fifth sign when Jesus walks on water across the Sea of Galilee. So here we are now looking at the sixth sign, the healing of the man who is blind from birth. And then after this, there's just one more sign, and it's a doozy. It's significant. It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. That's the the final, the seventh sign. There are other signs, smaller signs here and there, but John records these specifically that we may believe. Beyond these signs that kind of act as um, divisions for the book so that we can kind of keep track here, beyond the signs, there's kind of other ways to divide the book up as well. Um, Jesus makes seven great and very specific I am statements in John. We've looked at two of them so far. I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. And while we've seen those two very specific statements, he also implies or hints and, and very often says outright as we saw in the last couple of weeks, he says, I am Yahweh. I am very God of very God. I am, before Abraham was, I am, he says. But those I am statements are kind of a, a difficult to use to divide the book up into manageable chunks because they're kind of sprinkled throughout, especially the first, uh, we get into a lot of them here in the next couple of chapters. So I want to look at the relational aspect of what we've seen so far. So here's what I mean. In the first four chapters, so this is a bit of a review here, but in the first four chapters of John's gospel, we're introduced to Jesus and then to his disciples as he begins to to gather them to himself. 
There's a little bit of conflict, especially in chapter 2, and then as he meets Nicodemus in chapter 3, there's a little bit of conflict there with the Jewish leadership. But in the beginning, that conflict is fairly minor. They're still trying to figure out who this guy is. But then in chapters 5 through 8, which is where we finished last week, those chapters are filled with conflict. Jesus faced the Pharisees, He faced even at times some angry crowds who were demanding answers. They were demanding miracles, and at least once they were demanding food. But Then here beginning in chapter 9, the focus shifts from those who are his accusers, chapters 5 to 8, and on to those who would be his followers, his disciples. Now, There's still conflict. The conflict is still escalating. And I just read chapter 9, and you can see the conflict there between this man and his parents and the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leadership. I don't know about you, but for me, the conflict that we've seen over these last weeks and months as we've kind of slowly waded our way through John's gospel, the the conflict of those chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, it's it's wearying. It's tiring. It's, in some ways, it's beaten me down. And I imagine that that's the point. That's the point of all that conflict. Because at this point, when we get to chapter 9, I long to see Jesus giving sight to the blind. I long to see someone trust in him instead of people just trying to accuse him and even kill him. We long for the good news, right? We long for good news even in our own church, even in our own lives. As I was thinking about this this week and just this transition here, Reminded me of the first few years of my ministry here at Logansville Church when there were no baptisms. Chad mentioned last week, he, he and Annette are in Florida. Uh, they left early last Sunday to catch their flight, and they went down for a couple of, uh, for a week or so. And he mentioned last week when he came up to pray, he spoke of the, the impact of one of the former pastors. His name was Carl Stevenson, and he was a pastor here in the 50s. This was his first church. And then again, after he retired, Chad wasn't here in the 50s, as far as I know. After, he, after Carl, Pastor Carl retired, he came back as an interim in about 2001 and 2002 as, as, a, as an interim pastor. And he mentioned that at that time, the early 2000s, when, he, when Pastor Carl was here, the church was trying to decide whether or not it was going to remain open. Well, that same conversation, whether or not this church was going to remain open, it happened in the 80s, mid to late 80s. It happened again in around 2010, 2011. And to be honest with you, if I'm just going to be completely honest, I I thought for the first year or so of our ministry here, when our family first moved here in 2012, I thought that that I was going to be the last pastor that Logansville Church ever had. And my, my prayer for the church at that time, Lord, I don't know how to shepherd these people out of being in this church and into another. But then in July of 2014, at a church picnic at which I baptized Wes, after the baptism, we were standing at the pond as people made their way toward the hamburgers. Someone came up to me. It was Marcus. Don't turn and look at him. Marcus came up to me and and he said, in a great act of courage, actually, he said, you know, I've never been baptized. Because I know Marcus and had clearly seen evidences of his faith, I said, well, church is here and there's water. What prevents you from being baptized right now? He said, let me go tell my wife. And God used that moment, and again, this is not about Marcus, so don't even, don't even make it a big deal. I'm sure that he doesn't like the fact that I've mentioned his name in the sermon several times. 
But God used that moment to remind us and to remind me of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he still gives sight to the blind. God has used other moments just like that too. This is the importance of the ordinary means of grace, by the way. That whenever we see somebody come up out of the water, whether it's at a pond or in a hot tub in the front of the church, when we see somebody come up out of the water, we are to be reminded that Christ still gives sight to the blind. That he still gives new hearts to the dead. And he's used those moments to remind us that we must work the works of him who sent Christ when it is day, while it is still day, because the night is coming when no one can work. That's what he says here. So let's, let's, look, at, um, let's look for some light in these first five verses here as we look at this, lay this foundation. I want to actually start in verse 59 of chapter 8. I'm just going to read this again, just the first five verses, but starting in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that we, uh, he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Contrast between those verses, between those chapters even, but between especially verse 59 of chapter 8 and verse 1 of chapter 9 is something that we might miss at first. Now, there's no indication there of time at the beginning of chapter 9. So, so what that means is it isn't necessarily the case that chapter 9 happens right after the events of chapter 8. It isn't necessarily chronological. John, in particular, in writing his gospel, didn't really write like that. Yet he will generally use some, some kind of time markers to move his account along. So he will, even if you look over the last couple of chapters, which does all take place at once, he will say something like, after this, or then Jesus answered him, or on the last day of the feast. But here, it just says, as he passed by, as Jesus passed by. There's an, an understood here, a kind of break between these two chapters. We, we could almost read it like this. One day, as Jesus passed by. Or once, as Jesus was passing by. So the connection between these two chapters, 8 and 9, and even in these two verses, verse 59 and chapter 9, verse 1, it's, it's thematic. It's the theme that we're meant to see. Verse 1 is meant to stand in stark contrast to the previous verse, to verse 59. So, so let me explain. I didn't say this last week when we were looking at the previous um, chapter, but when Jesus hid himself there in verse 59, he probably didn't hide in a laundry cart like you see in the movies when someone escapes from a, a prison or uh, somebody escapes unseen from the bad guys in a hotel, something like that. Jesus didn't hide himself like that. Second um, Corinthians chapter 4 Beginning in verse 3, it's verses 3 to 6 says this, and, and see if this doesn't shine some light on, on what's really happening here. Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, that's what this whole section of, of John's gospel is about. The unbelievers in chapter 8 are blind to the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, stay with me here because Jesus uses this spiritual blindness in a physical way. Somehow. 
in their blind fury and rage at the end of chapter 8, as they pick up stones to crush his skull, they realize he's gone. He's, gone. he's not here anymore. Somehow, and we don't know how, the Bible does not tell us, Jesus hid himself from them. Somehow, they couldn't see him. But in chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sees. And that's the contrast. They can't see him, but Jesus sees even the least among the people of Israel. Even the least among us. A a blind beggar. Blind from birth. Probably, I would imagine, if he was blind from birth, that means that physically he didn't have properly formed eyeballs. That's probably what that means. He was blind from birth. There was no chance that he would ever see. But Jesus sees. That's the contrast here. So as the chapter unfolds, Uh, The reason I wanted to read the whole thing is so that we can understand what Jesus does here. And and as it unfolds, we, we understand that it's Jesus who causes this blind man to see. And ultimately, and much more importantly, he causes him to have spiritual sight. Jesus grants to this man belief in Christ as well. And his response is worship. But we'll get there. So the contrast of these two chapters is the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees versus the spiritual sight that comes through Christ alone. This fits nicely with Jesus' explanation, for example, of the reason that he often taught in parables. So he gives an explanation of why he taught in parables, and it fits this. In Matthew 13, beginning in verse 10, we read this. The disciples came to him and And said to him, why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. Or for to the one who has more will be given and and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the... Jesus goes on to say the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and here's the prophecy, he quotes from Isaiah, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. He says to them, but blessed are your eyes. For they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They longed for Christ. And here he is standing with his disciples. The Jews, the Pharisees, the, religious, the Jewish leadership, they looked at Jesus, but as Romans says, their foolish hearts were darkened. They looked at Jesus, but they did not behold him. His true disciples see him for who he is, and they worship him. And that's what this man's response will be at the end of this chapter. That's what happens when the light shines. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But before we get to this man's response and even the healing, we need to answer really one of life's most persistent questions. A question that's common. A question that's one of the most difficult, and and all too often it is a heart-wrenching question. The question I'm sure that at some point you have been asked or will be. That question is why? Why? It's really what his disciples are asking there in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What is the cause of this man's suffering? Why do people suffer like this? As Jesus answers their question... He's actually going to anticipate a follow-up question, and he answers that, and the follow-up question is, what should we do about it? I'm I'm sure you noticed this, though. 
the disciples start with an interesting presupposition. Sin is the cause of suffering. That's where they start. Somebody must have sinned. Who was it? Now, here's the thing. They're not wrong. At least from a big picture point of view. This is the, there's, a, there's a direct connection between sin and, and sickness or misfortune or suffering or affliction. We could call this category anything that is not very good in God's eyes. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, right at creation, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So any kind of affliction that is sub-very good, less than very good. Also, we know that as Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And as a result of that, as a result of sin and death being in the world, in Romans chapter 8, Uh, Beginning in verse 18, Paul says this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Think of that statement. Just stop right there and think of that statement. Paul believes that the sufferings of this present age, and Paul has been beaten, he has been Stoned, he has been chased out of cities, he has been in prison, he has been in shipwrecks. He says the sufferings of this present age are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, Paul says. There's a couple of words in there, futility and corruption. We could say that any kind of malady, any corruption of the very goodness of God's creation is a hint, and some hints are stronger than others, It's a hint that we are awaiting adoption as sons, that we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies, that we are awaiting with all of creation for God to make all things new. Ultimately, sin is the cause of affliction. But there's probably more to their assumption than just simply that. Because they're looking for a specific cause. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you remember... Let me give you a little reason why they ask this question. Do you remember that the people of Israel, they face specific curses for disobedience? There are specific uh, punishments that God will hand out to them if they disobey him. Specific punishments for, for the covenant people of Israel under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, under the terms of the law. Let me read you some of them. These are all from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a few of them. This is how it starts. Okay? These are the, uh, the punishments for disobedience. He says in verse 15, But if you will not obey my voice... Obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful, careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today. Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And down in verse 22, 
The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Verse 28, there's a lot more in here, by the way, but I'm just reading a few. Verse 28 says, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. And then over in verse 45, it says, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Now, again, those are specific curses for the people of Israel for not upholding their end of the Mosaic covenant, for not obeying the law. And so this is probably the root of their question. So who sinned that he was born blind? We understand the curses. Somebody must have sinned. But we don't want to, even as this is specifically applicable to the Israelites, we don't want to write it off as not applicable to us. Because even in the New Testament, we are shown that humanity still faced specific curses for sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 27, for example, speaks of sexually immoral men and women receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error in, in their own bodies. Or, or maybe a verse that's more familiar to us as Christians um, is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, which warns against participating in the Lord's Supper. It says, in an unworthy manner. Which is why, Paul writes, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. There very well can be physical punishments and ramifications for sin in this life, even in our bodies. So these disciples, in asking this question, they're not wrong, but they're still not exactly right either. They suppose that this man was born blind because of something he or his parents did. And Jesus has to say, no, it's not about that. It's about the gospel of God. However, <clears throat> even having said that, this is one of our favorite passages when it comes to our own affliction. We're quick to claim our own innocence. In fact, I don't, I don't think we really ask this question this way today. When we are afflicted in whatever way that might be, many times we ask the question, why me? When instead, maybe we ought to begin at least by examining ourselves, as 1 Corinthians 11 says. So let me ask this. Christian, this is for Christians. If you are a Christian in this room, do you follow the instruction that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 and 29, when he says this, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Do you examine yourselves? Now, now we have to be careful here, because I don't think this is about any one single unrepentant sin. So I'm not saying that you might get sick and die because you yelled at your kids on Tuesday and then took communion on Sunday. Probably most of us, if you have kids, would be dead. <laughs> That's not what this is about. This is about being a true disciple, being a genuinely repentant Christian. And James tells us in his letter, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I think as modern Christians, we forget that sometimes. Yet while we claim our own innocence, we say, no, there's nothing I could have done to bring this. We're quick to point, out, uh, to point our, our own fingers at others sometimes. That's what Job's friends did to him. 
one of his friends who was known as Eliphaz the Temanite, he said to him in Job 22 verse 5, he said to Job, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. And then he called on Job to repent down in verse 22. He says, Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. John Calvin, he said this, If my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God. But if God chastises me with a heavier stroke, I wink at my sins. If we wish to be candid judges in this matter, let us learn to be quick in discerning our own evils rather than those of others. Donald Gray Barnhouse He said this, he said, God is not up in heaven trying to hit people. God is not up in heaven trying to hit people. Anyone could testify to the fact that many times he has sinned and has not reaped the fruits of that sin. God has been gracious in a wonderful way. How tender and patient he is with us. So you know what all of this means? So far, we have a lot more to go. But do you know what all of this means? It means that we need to avoid pat answers. When we ask the question why, or when somebody asks us the question why, it means that we must confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed, as James says, because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It means that very often there are no easy answers. And it also reminds us, for example, of Acts 14.22, which says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. If we, as Christians, if we experience dangers, toils, and snares, it might simply be an indication you're on the right road. That might be the answer. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And maybe we should rejoice that we are considered worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. Well, at this point, if you're like me, you're looking at your Bible and you're saying, but doesn't Jesus say in verse 3 that this guy is off the hook? Look at verses 3 and 4 because Jesus actually takes the focus off the man and puts it on the work. Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Work, he's talking about. Jesus doesn't rebuke their why question. He doesn't say, no, don't ask that question. He doesn't doesn't rebuke them at all because it's not an inappropriate question. In fact, he will call other people back in chapter 5, one of the men that he healed. He said, now go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He actually is giving the guy a warning that if you continue to sin, something worse may happen to you. He doesn't rebuke their why question. It's not an inappropriate question, but he replaces their, their presuppositions with the sovereignty and purposes of God. He replaces this with the sovereignty and purposes of God. He doesn't declare that this man is blameless or or his parents, nor does he declare him free from the consequences of sin. Instead, Jesus shifts the focus to the works of God. Now, we we may have a problem here in how we understand this answer in verse 3. Does this mean that Jesus was born blind that this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him? So that? In other words, is God guilty of some unkindness toward this man? This seems to be how we sometimes view what Jesus says. We jump to the conclusion that Jesus eliminates the idea that, that sin is the cause of affliction. But he doesn't really do that. He says that Look, it's not that this man sinned. That's not what it's about. He sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not about that. This is about the works of God. Jesus wants us to focus on these works of God. He's saying this man's blindness is in the control of God. And he doesn't really answer their question. 
but he shifts their focus to God. So I want you to consider that statement for just a moment in the control of God. Your affliction, your suffering is in the control of God. That's true. Jesus is is going to heal this man. We're going to read about that. That's why I wanted to read the entire chapter. We could be sure uh, that we could see this. But this man's sin is not the focus. The focus is on the one who came to give sight to the blind. And this man's blindness is nothing compared to the blindness of those who reject him. Verse 59. This man's blindness is nothing compared to the blindness of those who rejected him. That's the point of chapter 9. That's what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to see, to understand. It's not about the curses for disobedience to the law. That's what the Pharisees are hanging on to. They would have taught, one of you sinned. We're not sure who, but one of you sinned. This is really about the one who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is about God's mercy toward this man. Not just in giving him physical eyesight, but so much more importantly, in saving his soul. This is about God's mercy toward all who are blind. This is so fascinating here because the crowds had already asked him. Back in chapter 6, the crowds had said, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in, in, he whom he, in Him whom He has sent. <laughs> that you believe in Him whom He has sent. He's still saying the same thing here. Of course, he's, he, there He was talking to unbelievers, the crowd, largely unbelievers. But here He's talking to His disciples. Is there a difference in proclaiming what the works of God are? Is there a difference when we're talking to unbelievers and believers? Of course there is, but not really. In verse 4, notice, he says, we. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So here are the works of God that we, including we, his disciples, must work. This is what he's talking about. The starting point must be... This is, the, this is the base, the foundation that cannot be removed. It cannot be weakened or the whole structure will collapse. The starting point is the same thing that he had said before, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The starting point is the, the preaching, the proclaiming of the gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus says this, When he is approached with large crowds who want to be healed physically, he says, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out to preach, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. What did he preach? He says it in verse 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. Just before this, it tells us explicitly, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Paul will expand this, this proclaiming of the gospel, the foundation of the works of God. He will expand this to include the preaching of all of God's word. Not just simply the good news of Christ, although it all points to Christ. Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through four, he, he says, Preach the I charge you in the sight of God and Jesus and everybody else, preach the word. You can look that up later. Second Timothy four. And the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the word, and, and I'm not talking specifically only about what I do. This. Yeah, it's gotta be this. But it's got to be all of us proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Telling our kids, teaching our kids over and over and over again. Laying that foundation. Talking to our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of God's word the proclaiming of the truth, they're closely related. In, in fact, you can't really separate them. Um, you shouldn't separate them. 
we could say it like this. First comes evangelism, then comes the building up of the body of Christ so that, so that the body of Christ will only endure sound teaching and not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Ephesians chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can look those up. Additionally, um, another of the works of God that we must be working, but I want to stress this, this has to start with the, the preaching of the word. That's of first importance. It's our foundation. But another of the works of God that are all over Scripture are works of mercy. Works of mercy. James 1, 27. James write, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Works of mercy are Jesus' healings, for example. It's what he did. Even in these next couple of verses, he has pity and compassion on the crowds. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 9? Some of this probably will sound familiar to you. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, beginning in 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. This is a summary of Jesus' mission. He went, all throughout all the, he went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's the start. Teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. To do what? To do the works of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and to do the works of mercy. Christians are called to minister to those who suffer. Maybe we do this through establishing hospitals and orphanages. That is historically what we have done, even in our own nation, even as you look at the names of some of the hospitals around Columbus. We have done this historically. Probably in our nation, there's a little bit too much red tape for churches to start hospitals now. I don't know. But we still do this around the world. And we're still called to do this around the world. But maybe we also do this through giving hugs to those who come into the pregnancy center. Or show kindness to the broken and blind sinners who come walking into these doors. Because as such were all of us. But I can't stress enough that the foundation is the good news of Jesus Christ. The works of mercy flow out of that. And then finally we must work the works of service as well. Obviously, works of service and works of mercy are closely connected. Um, and the line sometimes can be blurry between the two. But I think there's a couple of distinctions. The first is this. Works of mercy are typically done outside the church and with no hope of repayment of any kind. At this point, the, for example, this blind man was, was not a disciple of Jesus, and he couldn't, he couldn't pay Jesus for his sight, physically speaking. The only thing he could do is worship him, which he does. On the other hand, works of service are those things done within the church body. These are the, the one another's, not with a hope of repayment, but with the assurance that you can rely on the church to serve you if you ever need it someday. It's Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, which says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Speaking of the church, to the church, through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled with one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As I said, the line between works of mercy and works of service is pretty blurry and in either case the foundation must be the works of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And there's an urgency to this work. We need to do these things while it is still day. Now Jesus specifically here, we can understand this, that he's, he's talking with his disciples about, about the, his time with them on the earth. 
But there's a couple of other meanings here, and I'm talking about verse, really verses 4 and 5, 4 especially. A couple other meanings to this as well. The earth is getting darker, isn't it? Sin and death seem to be growing as the darkness spreads throughout the earth. And there will come a time of judgment. There are bright spots. I could be a pessimist with the best of them, but there are bright spots. There will come a time of judgment, however. A time when Christ's work of bringing salvation will come to an end. I keep quoting J.C. Ryle, and there's no point in stopping now, so here's another one. He says this. He was a bishop of Liverpool um, long before anything else came out of Liverpool. The Be- I'm talking about the Beatles. Anyway. He says this. The saying is one that should be remembered by all professing Christians. The life that we now live in the flesh is our day. Let us take care that we use it well for the glory of God and the good of our souls. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling while it is still called today. There is no work nor labor in the grave toward which we are all fast hastening. Let us pray and read and keep our Sabbaths holy and hear God's word and do good in our generation like men who never forget that the night is at hand. Our time is very short. Our daylight will soon be gone. Opportunities once lost can never be retrieved. A second lease of life is granted to no man. Then let us resist procrastination as we would resist the devil. Whatever our hand finds to do, let us do it with our might. The night comes when no man can work. As long as Christ is in the world, as long as Christians are still in the world doing the works of God, we proclaim that he is the light of the world. That is our message. That is our mission. This brings us back to the good news of Jesus Christ. In him is life, and the life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Let's pray. Lord, you've called us to be about the works of God. Jesus even said, we must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. And so, Lord, even though Christ has ascended to your right hand where he sits, he has not left us alone to do this work. Lord, you have sent your spirit. Christ has given your spirit, the Holy Spirit, to help us, to comfort us. And he has brought us together that we may be your church pursuing the works of God. Help us to proclaim that Jesus is the light of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.